Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we want to do a talk on the autonomic nervous system. This is going to be a two-part discussion. The first discussion is going to go through the overview of what the autonomic nervous system is, break down the different pathways that we have, sympathetic, parasympathetic, uh, muscarinic or cholinergic type pathways. Uh, what are the different types of neurotransmitters that we're going to deal with? We're going to have norepinephrine, epinephrine, acetylcholine, et cetera, and talk about the different receptors that we're going to see there. Then part two, we're going to go into the drugs themselves and what drugs that we give intraoperatively and critical care wise throughout the hospital that are going to affect these different pathways in the autonomic nervous system and when it would be useful to use one drug over another. Um, so Tanner, you just want to take us away just with a brief overview from a bird's eye view of what the autonomic nervous system is. We're going to start at a pretty high level and just talk about the basics and talk about the whole system in pretty simplistic terms. And then as we move forward in this episode, we'll kind of dial in and talk more specifically. So from a high view, what is the autonomic nervous system? So it's made up of the sympathetic and parasympathetic pathways, and these will be working together, or you might say against one another to maintain homeostasis in the body. The goal of these pathways is to release a neurotransmitter at the end of the final neuron in the pathway. This will go to a receptor at a target cell, and we'll talk about these receptors later in this discussion. Um, but these pathways will start in the brain and then will end at a target cell. So that's just the really high view of what the autonomic system looks like. Neurons then are going to be classified as either preganglionic or postganglionic. The ganglion is going to be the synapse or the gap between the two main neurons. So when we talk about the different neurotransmitters that are released, it's important to know that acetylcholine is going to be the neurotransmitter that is released from the preganglionic neuron, and that will bind to the receptor on the dendrite of the postganglionic neuron, both for the sympathetic and the parasympathetic pathways. So that's an important distinction. Let's think of an example. So let's say there's a pathway that is going from the brain to the liver. The first neuron is going to start the brain and go down to the spinal cord and emerge between two vertebrae there around the level of the liver. The neuron then will end and release acetylcholine from the end of the axon at the terminal of the nerve and will bind to the receptor on the second neuron. So there's the ganglion or the preganglionic moving to the postganglionic neuron. So then this postganglionic neuron, the second neuron will then be stimulated to continue the signal to the liver. So at the liver, then this is where the second neuron is going to release a neurotransmitter. And this is where you'll have your differences depending on what type of cell is trying to stimulate. Also, this will be the difference between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic pathways when we talk about specific neurotransmitters. So let's break this down between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic pathways. When comparing the two, sympathetic pathways are going to have shorter preganglionic neurons and then longer postganglionic neurons. So most of these ganglions for the sympathetic nervous system are going to be right next to the spinal cord. So all these sympathetic preganglionic neurons are going to come down the spinal cord, pop out between whatever vertebrae it's coming out at, 
and synapse there with the postganglionic neuron right next to the spinal cord. And all of these sympathetic neurons coming out and having a ganglion here make up what's called the ganglionic chain, which is the grouping of all of these ganglion right next to the spinal cord. From there, you're going to have a longer postganglionic neuron stretch all the way to the effector organ or tissue, wherever it's going to. And that's where it will then release whatever neurotransmitter is going to release to bind to a receptor on that target cell. On the flip side, you have the parasympathetic uh, nervous system. And what's going to happen here is the presynaptic nerves will again start up by the brain, come down the spinal cord. And when they come out between the vertebrae, they're going to go almost all the way to the effector organ or tissue prior to having that synapse and that ganglion then to the postganglionic neuron. So as you can see here, compared to the sympathetic nervous system, the parasympathetic will have very long preganglionic neurons and then very short postganglionic neurons. So as Tanner mentioned already, depending on whether you're using the sympathetic pathway or the parasympathetic, it'll result in the end neurotransmitter from that postganglionic neuron being different but the preganglionic neuron will always release acetylcholine. So that's an important thing to note here. It's always going to release acetylcholine. And then what we're going to be talking about the rest of this discussion is what type of neurotransmitter is released from that postganglionic neuron at that effector organ that's then going to bind to a specific receptor. So moving forward, I want you to think when you're trying to differentiate between what these receptors do, sympathetic or parasympathetic, Think of sympathetic as flight or fight. I feel like we typically hear that going through our undergraduate nursing classes as fight or flight, and then parasympathetic is going to be rest and digest, meaning that the sympathetic responses are going to correlate with our bodies trying to be in this heightened sense of we're scared, we're energized, we're active, metabolically speaking, active. So for example, sympathetic responses are going to include an increased heart rate, increased blood pressure, bronchodilation increase in metabolic rate, a decrease in the digestive tract. Again, you're always trying to think of what things are going to be more likely to occur when you're in this heightened sense. Whereas the parasympathetic is going to correlate with the body being relaxed. So it's a decreased heart rate, increased movement through the digestive tract. Just think of everything being relaxed. You're sitting on the couch watching a movie. That's your parasympathetic response. So sympathetic pathways typically are going to exit the spinal column around the thoracic to upper lumbar intervertebral spaces, whereas the parasympathetic pathways are going to come from either the cranial nerves themselves. So an example of that would be the vagus nerve, or they're going to come down the spinal cord and exit through the sacral uh, intervertebral spaces. Now let's talk about the specific neurotransmitters. When we think of the sympathetic neurotransmitters, the main two that you'll need to know is norepinephrine and epinephrine. Norepinephrine is made in the neurons in the sympathetic pathway. You should know that the process begins with tyrosine going through a series of conversions and it will end up making norepinephrine. The first step, and this is something that is questioned quite a bit on tests or reviews, or just the important thing that you should remember is that the first step of the process requires an enzyme known as tyrosine hydroxylase. This is going to be the step that is going to limit the rate of the process. So in regards to making more norepinephrine, this first step using the enzyme tyrosine hydroxylase, that's going to be the rate limiting step. So make sure you keep that in mind. Once norepi has been made in the neurons, it's going to be packaged in vesicles there at the nerve terminal and is going to be stored there at the nerve terminal. What is required then is 
a signal needs to come down the axon of the sympathetic postganglionic neurons. Remember, the preganglionic will release acetylcholine. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the postganglionic neuron, and it needs calcium. So when this signal comes down, it causes calcium to enter the nerve terminal. And then the calcium is actually what is going to help bind the vesicles that are housing the norepinephrine to the neuron terminal to that wall there. And then that is going to allow the vesicles to release the norepinephrine into the synapse. When norepinephrine is actually in the synapse, it's going to continue to bind to receptors as long as it's there in the synapse. And so we should then be thinking, okay, what are ways that we can manipulate or change the way that norepinephrine is available here in the synapse? So there's three specific ways that norepinephrine will be removed from the synapse. The first one, and this is the main way it's removed, is just being brought back into the nerve terminal where it can then be repackaged and reused. Second way is that it can just simply diffuse out of the synaptic cleft and that will enter the circulation. And then the third way is when it diffuses out of the synaptic cleft simply by uh, being used by other tissues or being brought in by other local cells there and used or brought into that tissue. You should know that monoamine oxidase or MAO and catechol O methyltransferase. I think that's the only time I've ever said that. Usually uh, you see that just as COMT and the monoamine oxidase as MAO. So if you remember MAO and COMT, these are the enzymes that are going to break down norepinephrine. You should be correlating this. This is the mechanism of action with think of your MAOI. So those are the inhibitors. This is going to allow that norepinephrine to be in the synaptic cleft longer. And that's where you see the effect of those types of drugs. Epinephrine in contrast to norepinephrine is going to be made in the adrenal medulla. So norepinephrine is converted in the adrenal medulla by the enzyme phenylotholamine and methyltransferase. Again, I'm not going to retry to say that, but that's the enzyme that is going to be converting norepinephrine to epinephrine. And again, this is in the adrenal medulla. So as a result, the adrenal medulla makes about 80% epinephrine compared to 20% norepinephrine. So the majority here will be the epinephrine that is going to be made in the adrenal medulla. A preganglionic neuron will come all the way down to the adrenal medulla where it will stimulate chromaffin cells to release the epinephrine and norepinephrine into the bloodstream. So this is constantly happening, which is how our bodies have this baseline of circulating catecholamines. And then these catecholamines then will be broken down again by the MAO and COMT, and that's in the liver. I want to pause here just for a quick second and mention uh, pheochromocytoma. So this is a case that you've probably done. And this is really the uh, backstory behind the pheo. So this is a tumor that is typically on the chromaffin cells in the adrenal gland. So this means that you'll have just really an increase in these circulating catecholamines being released from the tissue. And we actually go through and talk about the management of this in our endocrine episode. So if you have a chance, go over to the endocrine and take a second to listen to that. And I'll go in more depth here about the FIO. So now let's move into the actual receptors themselves. So once we've sent a signal down through either the parasympathetic, the sympathetic pathway, we've gone through the preganglionic neuron, it synapses with acetylcholine being released which stimulates the postsynaptic neuron or the postganglionic neuron 
to send that signal forward all the way to the receptor gland. Now it is going to release a final neurotransmitter and it's going to bind to one of these receptors that we're going to talk about here briefly at this receptor site, which is going to cause the response we want to have happen. So what are the different types of receptors? Typically, when we're talking about the autonomic nervous system, the final receptors are going to be what's called a G-protein coupled receptor. So this is going to go all the way back to your undergraduate level anatomy and physiology classes where you're learning about these type of receptors. So this is going to be just root memorization here. Hopefully this will come back a little bit um, when we go through these different pathways. Basically how it works is a G protein is going to be this receptor that's embedded into the membrane of a target cell where part of that receptor is sticking outside of the membrane and then it goes all the way through the membrane and then the other end of it is going to stick out on the intracellular aspect of this membrane. So what's going to happen here is when a neurotransmitter will bind to the G protein receptor, that neurotransmitter is what we call the first messenger. Once it binds to that outside portion of the G protein coupled receptor, it's going to cause the inside of that receptor to change. So now we're going to be involved on the inside of this cell. And on the inside of the cell here at the bottom part of this protein, it's going to have an alpha subunit. And once that neurotransmitter binds to the top part, it's going to cause that alpha subunit on the inside of the cell to detach from the G protein. And it's going to move across that membrane and it's going to activate or inhibit another protein called an effector. And we'll talk about what different types of effectors we can have here in a second, but that effector then is now gonna activate a second messenger. And that second messenger is now what's gonna cause the cascade of events to happen inside that cell. And depending on which second messenger we activate, that'll depend on what the response is gonna be. So now it's back all the way back up to the actual G protein receptor here. There's three main ones you wanna talk about. You can have GS, GQ, or GI. Now, there are two different effectors we're going to talk about as well with these pathways, and that's going to be adenylate cyclase and then phospholipase C. And then there's going to be a couple of secondary messengers we're going to talk about here, and that's going to be cyclic adenosine monophosphate or cyclic AMP. You're going to have calcium. You're going to have IP3 and then DAG are the more common second messengers that we're going to have. So let's talk about a couple of the different pathways now for each of these three G proteins. So when we activate a GS protein or GS receptor, that's going to stimulate the effector adenylate cyclase. So when we bind to this GS receptor, it's going to cause the alpha subunit on the inside of the cell to detach, move across the membrane and bind to another protein called adenylate cyclase on the inside of this membrane on the cell. And it's going to activate that adenylate cyclase. Once that adenylate cyclase is activated, it's going to now cause ATP that's inside the cell to be converted into cyclic AMP. So cyclic AMP then is gonna result in a various amounts of cellular functions that are gonna be altered depending on the type of cell that it's at. And we'll get into this more later in the talk, but we can't simply say cyclic AMP always does blank because it depends on if it's in the lung tissue, if it's in the heart tissue, if it's in the vascular system, et cetera. So just know though, that when a GS protein is stimulated, we're going to cause adenylate cyclase to make more cyclic AMP. That's the summary you need to know. So now let's talk about GI receptors. GI, same kind of process here, except it's going to inhibit the adenylate cyclase. So when the GI receptor is bound to, it will cause its alpha subunit to detach, go over to the adenylate cyclase, and they'll actually block or inhibit the conversion of ATP into cyclic AMP. 
So it's basically the opposite of what the GS receptor is going to do. And then lastly of the three, we have the GQ receptor. And this, when it's activated, will cause the alpha subunit to move over and stimulate the effector phospholipase C. So phospholipase C is then going to cause an increase in the amount of calcium, IP3, and DAG. So we have three second messengers here that are going to be stimulated. And when those three increase, typically we see an increase in contraction. So that's the, the main thing you're going to see with these, um, which makes sense. If you have calcium increase, you're going to have an increase in contraction. But just think when you see DAG, IP3, and calcium increase in contraction. So at any point though, in this process, at the first messenger neurotransmitter that's binding to that original G receptor is removed from that G receptor, then the pathway is going to be shut off, which obviously makes sense. Um, these three G protein pathways though, are going to be named differently according to what type of cell group they're located on and what function will be performed when they're activated. So they're going to be known as our adrenergic receptors, which is our beta one receptors, beta two, alpha one, alpha two, et cetera which is a much more common name that we think of when we're talking about the autonomic nervous system. But what you need to be thinking about is of the beta and alpha receptors, what are they really? Are they GS? Are they GI? Are they GQ? And if you know that, that'll tell you what the response is going to be. So let's dive in a little deeper into discussing what specifically those receptors are going to be. So the main adrenergic receptors are beta one, beta two, alpha one and alpha two. Think of alpha two as the exception here. So with the rest of these, you can pretty safely assume fight or flight. And we'll talk about the specifics of these receptors here in just a second. And that'll make a little more sense as to why alpha two is going to be the exception. So alpha one is going to use the GQ pathway. This makes sense because contraction occurs because of this pathway. We often think of neosinephrine as being the main alpha one drug that we will be giving. So think of your alpha one receptor and mechanism of action. It's going to be GQ. So this is going to activate the second messengers, calcium IP3 and DAG. And like Cole mentioned, this is where you'll see that contraction. Um, and this is where you'll have your action, your mechanism of action here at the alpha one receptor. When these receptors are stimulated, you're going to, again, see a increase in blood pressure. This is due to the constriction of the blood vessels. And then you'll also see an increase in your SVR. Alpha-1 receptors are really throughout the body. You can see mydriasis or pupillary dilation there with the muscle contraction. You can see an increase in sweat glands, contraction of the uterus contraction of the GI sphincters, you'll decrease your digestive motility and you'll increase your serum glucose. So these are all things that'll be stimulated because of the alpha one or really the GQ receptor. Alpha two, like I mentioned, think of this as kind of the exception with the rest of the adrenergic receptors. Alpha two is a GI pathway. So that means that they're going to GI inhibit adenylate cyclase. So as a result, you're going to have less cyclic AMP. And the first main messenger in this pathway is going to be your norepi. The effect of stimulating this receptor then is really going to depend on the location. So one of the locations for your alpha-2, this is probably where we think of it most, is on the postganglionic neuron. The reason this is 
working is because the norepinephrine then is going to be released from the nerve terminal. Most of it will cross the synaptic cleft and bind to receptors on the target cell. But some of that is going to come back and bind to the alpha two receptors on the neuron. And that is your negative feedback loop. So if the alpha two receptors are seeing norepinephrine binding there to those receptors, it's going to say, Hey, there's enough norepinephrine in the cleft that there's some coming back. I don't need to release more norepinephrine from the nerve terminal. As a result, we're going to see less sympathetic response and more of a parasympathetic response. Again, this is not a parasympathetic neuron. It is simply the inhibition of the sympathetic response simply because of that negative feedback loop and decreasing the amount of norepinephrine that is going to be released from that nerve terminal. You'll also see some sedation. And this is one of the lovely effects of Presidex, also clonidine. Those are both alpha two agonists, but you'll see the sedative effects there from binding there to the presynaptic alpha two You'll also see some anti-shivering effects with alpha-2. It'll decrease your insulin release, increase your platelet aggregation. You can see diuresis, and you can even see some vasoconstriction as well. So the vasoconstriction, that may seem counterintuitive, but you should remember that there are some alpha-2 receptors in the smooth muscles on the blood vessels. So norepi can bind to the receptors, and because it's a GI, so it's an inhibitory receptor, cyclic AMP will be reduced. And that is going to cause more contraction there on the smooth muscle and the blood vessels. So again, this is something that you should remember that if you give a bolus of Presidex and you give it quickly, sometimes you can see just a quick increase in your blood pressure due to the peripheral vasoconstriction. But when you see the central alpha two effects kick in, that's when you're going to have an overall decrease in blood pressure. And depending on how much you bolus, obviously that could be much more profound. So those are your alpha receptors. Remember alpha one is going to be your GQ. That's where you're going to see the typically vasoconstriction increase in your blood pressure. You can also see my dry assist increase SVR. You can see increased sweating, contraction of the uterus, decrease in things like the GI sphincters, digestive motility, and uh, you also might see a little bit of a spike in your serum glucose. Alpha-2 is going to be the GI, so inhibitory. Those are the things that you can see, again, remember, maybe a transient increase in your blood pressure simply because of the peripheral receptors, but ultimately you're going to see more of a parasympathetic look or more of an inhibitory look. So you'll see that sedation and also the decrease in release of your insulin, increased platelet aggregation, diuresis, and uh, also some of that anti-shivering effect. In terms of your beta receptors, this is just an old trick, but remember you have one heart, two lungs. So beta one is going to be on the heart. Beta two, think of that in the lungs as well as some other places in the body. We'll get to that. Both beta one and beta two receptors both use the GS protein pathway, which will increase your adenylate cyclase and will result in more cyclic AMP. Because beta one causes an increase in heart rate and also contractility of the heart myocardium, think of B1 as the driving receptor for our heart pump. As B1 is stimulated, there'll be more forward push from the pump. Beta 2 is going to be the primary receptor in the lungs that cause bronchodilation. 
So again, beta-2 is a GS receptor, which stimulates adenylate cyclase, makes more of cyclic AMP. So think of beta-2 as a dilating receptor, whereas alpha-1 is a contracting receptor. Beta-2 receptors will cause the relaxation or dilation of the bronchioles. Vasodilation will cause relaxation of the detrusor muscle, of your gallbladder, of the uterus. Also will cause an increase in your glucose levels and will increase your insulin release. You should also know that beta-2 stimulation will cause a decrease in potassium. I think of potassium and insulin as inversely related. Uh, you'll see that as far as the insulin driving the potassium into the cells. When you think of giving albuterol, which is probably the, the most common beta-2 that you think of, you also should think about what that does to your potassium. Again, that's going to drive potassium into the cell. So it'll drive your serum potassium down and it will increase your glucose levels and your insulin release. All right. You still with us? Hopefully maybe take a pause, go take a bathroom break. If you're driving, just shut us off for a minute because I know this is really gripping information. So um, let's jump right back into it now. We're going to move into the parasympathetic side of things. So as we mentioned before, acetylcholine is going to be the main neurotransmitter that is released from all the preganglionic neurons in both sympathetic and parasympathetic pathways. Well, now in the parasympathetic postganglionic neuron, acetylcholine is also going to be the main neurotransmitter released here on the second wave of neurons. So we consider these cholinergic neurons, which are going to be the parasympathetic side of things. And so they're going to produce acetylcholine and they're going to do this by combining choline that is circulating in the vascular system. So choline is going to be coming by in the vascular system capillaries, move out and be brought into these cholinergic neurons. And it's going to be combined with acetyl-CoA that is made from the mitochondria of these cholinergic neurons. And they're going to combine here to make acetylcholine in the nerve terminals of these cholinergic neurons. So they're packaged in these vesicles now, this acetylcholine, and it's going to be very similar to the sympathetic neurotransmitters. A signal is going to be brought down. And when the signal comes down the neuron, it's then going to signal the calcium voltage-gated channels to open up and calcium is going to flood into this nerve terminal and cause then the acetylcholine that is packaged in these vesicles to now merge with the end of the membrane and be released into the synaptic cleft. So there are a couple different places in our body here where we're going to release this acetylcholine. And I've already mentioned the first one being all of the preganglionic neurons of both the sympathetic and parasympathetic pathways. You can also have it here at the postganglionic neurons of these parasympathetic pathways. You're also going to see them at your neuromuscular junctions. So if you haven't listened to our talk yet about the neuromuscular junction and how we cause a contraction to occur, basically at the end of these neurons, we're going to release acetylcholine, which binds to our nicotinic receptors. So we call those typically the nicotinic pathways because acetylcholine is going to bind there to nicotinic receptors. But for the most part, for this talk, we want to discuss acetylcholine being released from these postganglionic neurons in the parasympathetic system, also known as the muscarinic system. So these nerves are going to release acetylcholine. It's going to bind not to nicotinic receptors, but muscarinic receptors. And there's five different muscarinic receptors appropriately named M1, M2, M3, M4, and M5. Um, and we'll discuss the differences here in a minute. But in order to get rid of the acetylcholine now, once the acetylcholine is brought into the synaptic cleft, it's mainly going to be metabolized by an enzyme in the synaptic cleft called acetylcholinesterase. The byproducts of this metabolism is going to be acetate and then choline. 
the choline is going to be brought back into the neuron and used to make more neurotransmitters, more acetylcholine to be released. And then the acetate is going to go into the circulation and get washed away. So in terms of the five different muscarinic receptors, it's going to be a lot more simple now that you already understand the G protein couple receptors. So muscarinic receptors one, three, and five. So think of all the odd ones. They're going to use the GQ pathway and they're going to stimulate. Then if you remember GQ is all about contraction. So it's going to stimulate the release of IP3, DAG, and calcium. So it should make sense then that if you have an M3 receptor, let's say in the lungs, what kind of effect are you going to see? Well, because there's contraction, you're going to see bronchoconstriction occur. So the M3 receptors in the bronchioles are going to combat the beta-2 receptors in the bronchioles, which cause bronchodilation. So you're going to have this give and take here between the muscarinic 3 receptors and the beta-2 receptors in these bronchioles. When you have M2 and M4 receptors, they're going to use a GI protein pathway. So if you remember, GI inhibits adenylate cyclase from making cyclic AMP. So an example of where M2 is going to be is going to be in the right atrium of the heart. This is where the vagus nerve is going to release acetylcholine and it's going to lower the heart rate when it binds to the M2 receptors. So this is going to basically slow down our conduction system and slow down our heart rate. So when you're in that rest and digest phase, you don't want a fast heart rate. So you're going to have your vagus nerve sending a signal down, releasing that acetylcholine, binding to the M2 receptor there and slowing the conduction system. Again, this is going to combat the sympathetic, the fight or flight response you're going to have with the increased heart rate. So that's about the extent that we're going to go into with this muscarinic receptors, but just know that one, three, and five are all packaged together. They're a GQ pathway and muscarinic two and four are going to use a GI protein pathway, which is going to be that inhibitory um, of the cyclic AMP. Now let's talk a little bit about the, so what, how does this actually function in our body? And let's talk about some of the reflexes that our body uses to maintain homeostasis. So the first one we want to talk about is the baroreceptor reflex. So the baroreceptor reflex is the idea that as your blood pressure rises, your autonomic nervous system will lower your heart rate, contractility, and SVR to lower the blood pressure to a normal level. The opposite is true. So if you have a decrease in your blood pressure, then the autonomic nervous system will increase your heart rate, increase your contractility, try to increase your SVR again to try to maintain this homeostasis. In order to do this, there are some pressure senses in the carotid sinus and then also in the transverse aortic arch that are constantly monitoring and reading the blood pressure and sending signals to the medulla. The carotid sinus will send signals via the glossopharyngeal nerve and the transverse aortic arch will send these signals via the vagus nerve. So those are the two pathways, but they both end up there in the medulla. If the sensors are reading the blood pressure and it's too high, then the medulla will send out signals through the parasympathetic pathway, through the vagus nerve to the muscarinic 2 receptors in the heart. And this, again, if you remember what Cole was talking about, the muscarinic 2 receptor is going to slow down the heart rate. The medulla will also block the sympathetic signals, which will limit the alpha and beta receptor stimulation. So the result of that, if you're not stimulating alpha, you're not stimulating beta, you're going to see an overall vasodilation and then a decrease ionotropy as well. 
So this is the reason that if we give a bolus of Neo, the blood pressure will increase because we're increasing the SVR, but the bare reflexor will also cause the heart rate to decrease. So we've all done this where you open your Neo up and maybe your cup hasn't gone off yet, but you'll see your heart rate start to trend down and you should know that your blood pressure is going to be affected by whatever amount of Neo you gave simply because you've seen the heart rate change. And the reason this heart rate changed is because the blood pressure has already increased. And then the baroreceptor is causing that heart rate to decrease. So in theory, the heart rate and blood pressure should be constantly adjusting due to the baroreceptor reflex to maintain a normal heart rate, normal blood pressure. But again, the drugs that we're giving can impair this reflex. So if we're giving propofol, that's one that can limit their receptor reflex. Our volatile gases will do the same thing. Cushing reflex is another one that we should talk about. And this is when you have endocranial hypertension. So this results in hypertension and then bradycardia and irregular respiration due to increased pressure on the brainstem. We talk more in depth about this in our neuro discussion. So I don't want to go into a ton of depth here, but you should remember Cushing reflex in my mind, my simplistic mind. I just remember Cushing sounds like crushing in the brain, or you have so much pressure that you have crushing there. Uh, and you think about what a neuro patient might look like. You have high blood pressure, possibly bradycardic, and then you have that irregular respiration. Again, this is because of those pressure changes on the brainstem. Bainbridge, again, my simplistic mind, this has to do with volume fluid. So when I think of Bainbridge, I think of a bridge over the fluid and it helps me remember this. If it doesn't help you, then uh, ignore me, ignore my foolishness, but it's what helps me. So Bainbridge reflex is the idea that when the preload in the heart is high, so you have a lot of volume coming back to the heart, then your heart rate will increase. And this is to keep the flow moving forward. So again, if you have increased volume, you don't want that to be backing up and causing uh, congestion, whether in the heart or back in the peripheral vasculature. And so the heart rate's going to kick up and keep that forward moving through the heart. And so this is what's going to be the brain bridge reflex to the increased volume in the heart. So there are going to be sensors in the SA node and also in the right ventricle that will send the signal to the medulla. And again, this will inhibit the vagus nerve if the heart is full or if the preload is high. And this will result in an increased heart rate simply because that vagus nerve will not be stimulating that muscarinic 2 receptor. The basal Jarish reflex, this is the thing that you need to think about anytime that you are placing a patient in the sitting position. Uh, this is a common question. I feel like if you have a patient that is having a shoulder surgery, that is going to be in beach chair, what reflex are you going to uh, be looking out for? So the basal Jarish reflex is the idea that when preload drops significantly. So when you have severe hypotension, the heart rate is going to slow down to allow more time for that blood to fill the heart prior to each contraction. So you can think about if somebody was fluid depleted, we go ahead and sit them up. Now we have less volume coming back to the heart simply because of gravity. And now our cardiac output has drastically decreased. So the result is going to be the heart rate to slow down to allow the small amount of circulating volume comparatively to 
maybe a normal or hypervolemic patient, that small amount of volume to fill up the chambers and then have that forward flow and that good cardiac output. The heart is going to send signals again to the medulla. The medulla will send a parasympathetic signal through the vagus nerve to decrease the heart rate again, if the filling pressure is too low. So the patient will typically present with bradycardia, and this is combined in the presence of hypotension as well as coronary artery dilation. So again, the heart is just doing everything it can to basically work with what it's got to still keep the body and heart perfused. And again, the, the main thing you'll see here is a hypotensive picture with a bradycardic picture as well. The last one that I want to talk about here, and we'll wrap up this discussion is the celiac reflex. And this often occurs with laparoscopic surgery when you are filling up the peritoneum with gas. And so as you insufflate, the contents of the abdominal cavity are stretched, the vagus nerve is stimulated. And this is where you can see a drastic, drastic bradycardia and hypotension. This is often very, very fast and hopefully uh, transient. If not, this is something that you'll have to intervene very quickly. You can give robinol, atropine, many times just decreasing the pressure in the abdominal cavity will cause the celiac reflex to stop and you won't have that vagus nerve stimulation and the bradycardia and subsequent hypotension will correct. But this is something that can very, very quickly happen. And if not addressed quickly can lead to uh, poor patient outcomes, if not addressed uh, in a very timely manner. So that's going to wrap up part one of our autonomic nervous system discussion. We went through the most common receptors that we would see, the neurotransmitters that are going to be binding to those receptors. What are the common responses we're going to see to stimulating or inhibiting those receptors? Um, I encourage you to tune into part two of this discussion where we go through the different common medications that we give, such as epinephrine, norepinephrine, neo, et cetera. Um, how are those going to affect these different receptors and when are situations that we should use those over other situations. So I encourage you to listen into that talk. And uh, again, hopefully this has been helpful uh, review or just um, some more knowledge that you can learn to just better take care of our patients when it comes to the different reflexes that we would see and the different types of responses autonomically that we're going to have to their anesthetic.